From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning in and welcome to my third episode as an associate editor of The Podvocate. We are continuing to explore the intersection of law and education today. I'm your host, Neka Ugu, and today we are delving into the world of constitutional law, history, and sociology. My guest this week is Dr. Maricela Martinez-Cola, who teaches race and ethnicity, civil rights, and sociology at Morehouse College. Dr. Martinez-Cola is a proud Chicana, daughter of an immigrant and first-generation scholar. She was born and raised in Battle Creek, Michigan. She attended the University of Michigan, where she earned her bachelor's degree in psychology and African-American studies. She went on to earn her law degree at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. While she loved the study of law, the practice of law left her feeling flat. After only a year in law, she switched career paths and served as director of multicultural affairs at a variety of institutions around the country. After nearly 10 years in student affairs, she went on to earn her PhD in sociology at Emory University. Dr. Martinez-Cola has been published in the Journal of Law and Society, The Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Teaching Sociology, and Latino Studies. She has also published a book, The Bricks Before Brown, where she identifies over 100 cases filed before the famed Brown v. Board of Education, and specifically examines the contributions of Chinese Americans, Native Americans, and Mexican Americans to the struggle for educational equality. Please note, all opinions expressed on the pod are solely those of the individual and do not express the views or opinions of guests, employers, or Loyola University Chicago. Dr. Martinez-Cola, could you start off by sharing your decision, what motivated your decision to go to law school? Wow, that's a, a great opening question. So, um, so I'm the first in my family to go to college. So I'm a first generation. And um, my background, uh, my ethnic or racial background, I'm Chicana, so I'm Mexican-American. So, um, and I grew up in Michigan, so I, I call myself a Michicana, you know. Um, but so being the first in my family and being a woman of color, I think um, I know, you know, there's, there's um, one of four things that you do, right, when you go to college and, and you're, you're going to you're going to move on. You go to business school, engineering medicine or law school, right? So I stunk at math and science. And so that got rid of three right away. But I could argue well, quote unquote. And so there was this belief that I would do really great at law school, you know? Um, And, you know, I think that I'd always had very romantic ideas, of course, of what lawyers did. No no realistic ones, because again, I'm the first in my family, so I didn't have anybody to talk to about what, what, you know, what do lawyers really do? Um, and so I applied to several law schools and I, when I took the LSAT and I'll be really honest, I am terrible at standardized tests, absolutely terrible. And I had a horrendous 
LSAT score. And, um, and so of course I, I was, you know, not getting accepted to a variety of different places. Um, and I had, there was a, uh, I went to University of Michigan and there was a, a law school um, student fair, you know, that, that was there. And my last three schools, um, Iowa, Indiana, and Loyola were all gonna be there. You know, so I went there and I met the director of admissions from Loyola and I said, listen, you know, I, and I, I just, I, I don't know where this courage came from. I said, here's all the things that I've done and I'm a really exceptional student. I said, I just, I, I did really poorly on the LSAT and I'm gonna tell you, I'm not gonna take it again um, because I know I won't do well. I said, but, you know, I promise you, you, you accept me, you'll get a student leader, but you know, all these things that I, I you know, I said again, you know, views of confidence that came out. Um, and I said, and, and if you accept me and I fail, you at least get one year out of me, you know? Um, and so apparently she put a note in my file and then you know, the rest is in history. I got accepted to Loyola um, University of Chicago. And that was pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> Long story. <but. laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. And I, uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that, that resonate with me there. I think um, really, really advocating for yourself, uh, I think is, is really awesome and exciting. And also, I'm also a first generation law student. My parents are born in Nigeria. So I also resonate with um, the, the, the four options, let's say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put exactly. it, to, to put it simply the four options. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's, and it's really, it's, it's exciting. It's a privilege, but there's a lot of, there is some weight there, you know, there's, uh, you know, that does weigh on me as I decide what, what kind of law I want to do. And, um, you know, feel like in a way feeling like you're carrying, uh, carrying more maybe than some other yeah. uh, more you're traditional whole, students. Right. You're carrying a whole community with you. You know, I, I tell my, you know, my um, students that I, I went to University of Michigan to represent my community. I went to law school to represent my family and I got my PhD and that was for me. That was just for me. Um, but, you know, yeah, when, in law school, you know, you go there and as a, you know, as a woman of color, I thought, okay, I, I need to, you know, I need to major or, you know, look for and, and try to get jobs in, you know, civil rights law or immigration law. You know, that's the area where, at, where when I was there, what I really started to enjoy and kind of fell in love with was intellectual property law. You know what I mean? But that's not something that uplifts the community. You know, um, and so there was, yeah, it's a tremendous pressure when you go there. There's that's an extra burden. I don't want to say burden. It's just an extra weight that um, I think that people of color, BIPOC folks, you know, carry with them when they go to law school. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, it's yeah, and there's solidarity in that, you know, and the ability to to resonate with others that have been through it. But I I can understand, um, and I felt sometimes that while going through it, it can also be an isolating experience. Mm -hmm. um, looking back at your time at Loyola, are there certain activities or, or courses that you felt, you mentioned intellectual property, but tell me a little bit about what you remember most from your time and maybe some of the things that excited you and, and pushed you along while you were in law school. Gosh, it's a, so you're taking me back because I, I was there 96 to 99. So I'm, I'm a bit uh, aged, you know, since then. But um, 
I, I think I really appreciated the, the sense of, there really was a sense of community that, that was being built there. You know, I, I truly believe that kid, that came from or comes from, you know, the Jesuit roots that Loyola has. It's, it's you know, my when I met other friends that went to law school, they had a very different experience than I did. Super uber hyper competitive. And, you know, and I just I didn't feel that as much. It was there, but I didn't necessarily feel it in the same way. Um, I also joined the Black Law Student Association and the Latino Law Student Association. So I, I was members of both. And so I really got a chance to build a community then as well. Um, and I remember really enjoying, um, you know, there's certain professors that I think, you know, really left an impact on me. Um, you know, uh, do, um, you know, Mr. Uh, do, uh, Professor Williams, you know, with contracts, you know, absolutely adored taking his class. Um, you know, D, uh, Professor Kaufman, you know, with, um, Oh gosh, what's the one uh, civil procedure? You know, um, so yeah, all of those kind of the 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 biggies I took with really really good professors. Um, there was one that was a little scary, Norman Amaker, and he taught constitutional law, and we called, you know, he and he stuck to the Socratic method. He was a a child of the Socratic method, and we called it getting Amakered because he would stick with you. You know, even if you admit you did not do the reading, which is like a death sentence, you don't dare say you didn't do the reading. But if you by some chance slipped and said, he's going to stay on you even more. And so everybody in the classroom got amicured. But I realized I learned that I didn't, though. I never got called on. And the, I believe that the reason why is because I used to visit him during his office hours. You know, and the first time I went to go visit him, he has all these you know, things on his wall, you know, these these framed sort of documents on his wall. And one of them was about, you know, appearing before the Supreme Court. And I was like, you appear before, in a, you know, you appear before the Supreme Court, you know, and I didn't really know his whole background. So I, you know, we just, I got to hang out with him. We just got to know all the wonderful things that he did, you know, and so I don't think, I don't think he ever, I, I have a feeling he never called on me because we pretty much already talked about the class, you know, during our meetings and stuff. But, oh yeah, it was, he was brutal really just tremendously brutal um but yeah that's i think when my first impressions you know when i'm getting there was trying to establish community it's, and I, I found some really good people that that had really good intentions so it worked out really well at least there but yeah it can feel lonely it was it was there's times where you know um you just you, you don't know if you're making the right choices or doing the right things and you know, and uh, in, in law school, you just get one shot for that grade. You know, this isn't like college where you get, you know, papers and midterms and all these other things to be able to guide you and let you know how you're doing. You get one shot, you know, um, and it's it kind of feels like it's sink or swim, you know. Definitely. It's, it's a scary feeling. I do think, I loved hearing you describe some of those professors and you know, the classes you took with them, because I do think professors, you know, some of the great professors really do stand out, you know, even, you know, many years later. Uh, and now, you know, you are a professor yourself. Yes. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your decision to, to pivot from, not, not away from law necessarily, law 
is integral to what you're currently doing as well. But I'd love to hear about your pivot to academia and um, and sociology. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what I share with people is that I loved, loved the study of law. Loved it. Hated the practice of it. You know, um, and I, I was spoiled in, in law school because my um, first year, my first summer, my internship was at Nike, you know, Nike, the corporation. So I did a legal internship with them and, and you know, corporate law, you get those kind of jobs after you've done all the billable hour stuff, you know, that you're supposed to be doing. So I kind of got a taste of something that I wasn't going to get for several years, you know, but I loved it there and I had such a great time and, you know, talk about intellectual property. It was fantastic, you know. And then my second summer, I was with um, a very a small, you know, law firm in my hometown. And so I got to do a lot of really neat things, you know, but again, it was an internship, so I didn't have the billable hour pressure to it. Um, and I ended up going back to my hometown and I worked for that same law firm. And I just, I, I just didn't really gel with the, the, with the whole notion of billable hours. It just didn't, you know, and, and researching, it was fun, you know, to some extent, but you know, you did, I didn't realize how mundane the practice of law would be, you know? Um, and so I, I ended up, I was moving from my hometown in Battle Creek, Michigan, um, to a larger city, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I interviewed with a law firm and I interviewed with a college with a university that had a diversity coordinator position. Right. And so I ended up getting an offer at both, but something about the diversity coordinator position just resonated with me because it was the kind of work I had been doing all along anyway, you know, at law school during my undergrad. And so I really started to enjoy that part of it. Um, and so I went over to higher, you know, education administration and I didn't look back, you know, um, and I worked for about 10 years, you know, um, and it was the law degree is probably one of your most flexible degrees ever, because all I had to say was, you know, they said, well, why is, why are, why is a lawyer applying for this job? And I said, well, you know, this job requires that you advocate on behalf of your students, right? You know, so they're like, that's true. It's, and so, you know, I was like, yay, they bought it. But, <laughs> you know, and so I ended up working at a variety of different institutions around the country. So I worked at Davenport University in Grand Rapids, George Washington University in Virginia, um, University of Georgia um, here in Atlanta, uh, and then Agnes Scott College. Um, and I loved it. I did. I love that work. Um, but I, I would give guest lectures about diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff, you know, um, for professors. Class. And I realized I really liked that. And so I wanted to go to the faculty side of the house, you know, um, but in order to do that, I needed to get a PhD because even though a law degree is a terminal degree, you still need a PhD to teach, you know, at a college. And so um, when my son uh, got started going to school, you know, I said, now mama's going to school too. And so we both went to school together, basically. And I started my PhD program when he went into pre-K, <laughs> you know, and um, went on from there. So that was the pivot. So pretty big one, but yeah. No, that sounds, that sounds awesome. And I think I shared with you that I, my 
I used to teach before coming to law school. And I, th I think there are really so many transferable, transferable skills in terms of what we talk about advocacy in terms of clients in law school so often, but being in a classroom, being in a school building is all about advocacy for students. Yes. And I think that that is, you know, it's not a it's not a big stretch. There there are so many there's so much connection there, and so I really love love hearing you talk about that. When you think about advocacy skills overall, there's a lot there. Are there specific legal skills or or things that you feel like you really were able to hone in law school that you've been surprised have been really helpful uh, in your years after practicing law? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think, you know, when you go to law school, one of the first things that you don't realize is that it doesn't, you don't, you're not really taught law, like you're taught to practice law, you know, you don't, you, you know, I, I never really ever saw a contract until I was at Nike. And I, you know, hadn't, you know, you, you can see what it means to file something, but you don't really know the process behind, you know, you've never written one, so to speak, you know. Um, so what it does is it teaches you to think like a lawyer, right? And once you think like a lawyer, you're, that's it. Once you have that skill, I can attest to you, you never lose it, you know? Um, and I remember the moment, I remember the moment I realized, oh my goodness, I'm messed up now <laughs> you know, with this. It was a Seinfeld episode, right? It was a Seinfeld episode and it was an episode where Kramer was, you know, advising a beauty queen and she had these trained dubs, right? That she had trained and they were in the hotel and she was in the hotel room below Jerry. Jerry was right above her in the hotel room. And of course the doves are out on the balcony cooing away, you know, coo, coo, you know, they're cooing away. And Jerry dumps a bucket of ice thinking he's getting rid of, I guess, pigeons, right? You know, um, to try to scatter them away. But he ends up killing the doves, right? And so this is something you're supposed to be laughing at, right? Ha ha ha, look how funny that is. And I kept thinking, I wonder if that's like, you could get it for chattel, you know, conversion of chattel. I mean, you know, you think about the time that she spent, you know, training them. Now she's not going to be able to do the pageant because her doves are gone. And, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking of like all the different things that she could sue them for. And I was like, okay, now I'm really messed up because I couldn't watch a Seinfeld episode without seeing some legal issue pop up, you know, in there. And, um, and so your mind does that constantly. I still do it to this day when people are suggesting a course of action, you know, I will present other options. I'll, you know, play the devil's advocate, you know, um, because, you know, as a, in law school, you're taught to really know your side, so to speak, but you have to master the other person's side, you know what I mean? And to be able to see and think in both ways and, and cover those arguments, address those arguments before they're even spoken. And so you just, that skill you learn and you just keep, and I, I still use it to this day. Does that make any sense? Yes, it makes a lot of sense. And and even the, the not being able to turn it off, I definitely resonate with, and I haven't even graduated yet. <laughs> um, but also thinking about anticipating the other side's arguments and really honing that skill also connects to what it means to anticipate student misconceptions in the classroom. Yes. as well and and thinking about it, it's almost about like zooming out of your own perspective a little bit um and, and and donning that other remembering when you first learned about xyz concept yeah 
Um, yeah. it's, it's definitely, it's different, but I, I think it comes from that same, that same essential skill. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what you talked about in terms of thinking like a lawyer, I, in the spring, I took constitutional law with Professor Rosen, who was a visiting professor, who was a visiting professor from Kent. And something that he did that was a little bit unique from my other professors last year is, of course, we would would be cold called after, you know, doing the reading, but it wasn't so much about pulling the facts or holdings from the cases. Of course, that was important, but he was cold calling on hypotheticals that would be based upon those readings and cases. And so looking at the hypo uh, on the board, of course, there might be a case that's triggered. Maybe I look at this and I think immediately to Fisher with affirmative action, but the hypo is not going to say this is Fisher. So I think at first it was, it was a little jarring and a little difficult, but I'm so grateful thinking back now on how that really pushed constitutional law was one of my favorite classes and one of the ones I did best in last year. And I think pushing that envelope to really, to dive, I guess, in some ways, a little further down in that the Bloom's taxonomy of it all of like, let's apply it right now. Yeah, 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 exactly. And exactly. In the world of constitutional law, which um, I know that you are well-versed in as well, (laughs) is really interesting because the application is really where things can get, things get exciting, uh, change occurs, but as we, as we know, that law really does change and, and the cases they're defining cases. And so, and it can be messy. It's so messy. You know, exactly. that's one thing that I was able to do when I, I think one of the reasons why I did so well in grad school is because I came in with a fully formed idea of what I wanted to study. So the, the thing that I came in with is what I left with and I knew I wanted to study. And this is where I got a chance to blend my love of history law and sociology all in one, you know, is what I got an opportunity to do. And my, you know, the skills that I learned um, in law school, you know, really, uh, I I use them all the time. And I use them when I was, you know, doing my research, because, you know, I can see things from a legal perspective that a historian wouldn't see, you know, um, when I was reading the transcripts, you know, of the Mendez case, you know, and we could talk about that specifically, but when I was reading transcripts, I could hear the the voices in my head, you know, and I, and I knew what the objections were for and why, and, you know, things like that. So I, I, I think that's what it really honed in and really strengthened what I was ultimately studying. So. Definitely. And it's, that's the beauty of interdisciplinary work and scholarship and its importance but um I know that you and Dean Giselle were in the same section and I've I've talked to her about you before and uh your book the the bricks before brown was in her office when I was discussing with her and something she said that I you know will share with you although you know it is it is a quote from you is uh sometimes sociologists feel like there's too much law in the book and on the (laughs) other hand you know lawyers are like oh there's a lot of a lot of sociology here. Um, and then of course there is so much, so much history, but could you speak a little bit to that interdisciplinary approach and maybe your reasons for, for wanting to write the bricks before Brown um, and, you know, sharing with our podvocate audience, what the book is about and yeah, what it means to you. Absolutely. Um, so, 
you know, honestly, I was first inspired by my the students that I worked with in multi when I was in multicultural affairs. You know, um, there was a wonderful Black History Month event that the students really loved and enjoyed, um, and they came and uh, they had some students, a Latino student, a you know, a Latine student, and an Asian American student come into my office after the program. You know, and they were like, Dr. MC, that was awesome. It was so You know, they were really inspired, and they said, but did we do anything? You know, meaning did Latinos and Asian Americans do anything or did we just sit on the sidelines? You know, and I was like, no, of course you did something. Absolutely. You know, um, let me let me get back to you on that. And so I started to research things, you know, and so I, if I researched something, um, you know, in Black history, I looked for its not equivalents, but something similar that happened in the other communities because you would see it. So, you know, you know White supremacy is so efficacious in how it works that it's going to work in very similar ways across different racial groups, right? And so um, one of the things, the, you know, and I would do this to help them with their programming, right? And so one of the programs that we talked about one day doing was looking at um, Brown versus Board of Education and its legacy, right? And um, and I thought, okay, you know, I know how the law works. Because, you know, the law works that groups will say, yeah, this applies to us too, me too, me too. So I expected to see, you know, when I was doing my research, I expected to see cases involving Mexican-Americans and Asian-Americans and Native Americans around the same time. That's, you know, I, I expected somewhere I would be close by, you know. Um, and then as I was doing research and I found sort of these uh, seminal cases, these really important cases in each group. You know, I was so floored by what I discovered, you know, that the Mendez case happened. It was the closest one. That was a Mexican-American case. It happened in 1947. And then you go to the 1924, and that was the Piper v. Big Pine. That was a Native American case. And then you go all the way to 1885, you know, um, Tate versus Hurley, and that was a Chinese-American case. And so you start to see, well, of course, these happened at really pivotal times, you know, in those, in the racial history of each of those groups, right? And so, yeah, so I, I, I tell my students that I see connections. I'm like that kid in the sixth sense, you know, who says he sees dead people. <laughs> I see them everywhere. I see connections. I see them everywhere and I see them all the time. And so I think that's what really in, inspired me to want to study that more. Um, and it's really funny because my advisor ultimately told me, you know, you're doing three dissertations in one, right? You couldn't just, you could just take one case and study it. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, no, you have to have all four side by side. I think they tell a really compelling story. Um, when you, especially when you look at race, class, gender, age, you know, those different areas. And so, yeah, so this came this really incredible journey of uncovering all these fascinating cases, but then what I, in, in making sure I was, you know, identifying all the cases, what I did is I actually ended up finding out there were, I found initially about 105 cases that were all filed before Brown. So um, most of which were filed by Black plaintiffs, you know, um, and so that's one of the things that I think was really um, critical was identifying the road. And so I, that's where I started to come up with this idea of bricks. These are the bricks that laid the path to Brown, 
you know, um, and each of them were just so fascinating. So I got to really get to know all 105 cases, but I, I dove a bit more into the 11 cases involving Native American, Mexican American, and Chinese American plaintiffs. And then I took three to do a deep dive case study. Um, and they were all in California. So it was great because it kind of kept the law consistent. You know, you could look at how it developed at least in one state, you know. So yeah, that's how I got to finally nerd out and and, and do all that. And, and it was just, I, I loved it. I loved every bit of it. That's so, that's so awesome to hear. And the visual is really so compelling as well, the, the bricks before Brown. And I really love that because the law is each case that we learn, no matter whether it's criminal law or constitutional law or contracts, like these cases do not exist in a silo. They Absolutely. exist with other cases. They exist within the racial, social, economic context that's going on at that time. And I think Brown v. Board of Education is such an important case, but it is just one case out of a very complicated history that the U.S. has with education. Very and so. uh, and even something I love about Brown that I knew from my Black Studies background is even when we learn about Brown v. Board of Education in, in law school, we, we don't know a lot about some of the, the other components and what was actually brought forward versus what was decided. And so I'm, yes. I'm always interested in the stories that aren't told, but also the the parts of cases that that we don't really talk about because maybe they're not recorded. Yeah. Uh, and and what were the consequences of Brown? You know, exactly. people don't realize that you you know they're they're we're lamenting today about the lack of black teachers right. you know that exists, and it's like you had a a plethora of them at around Brown. You know, at a time around Brown, all these schools where you had teachers, black teachers that knew their black students and loved their students and cared for their students. And then you, you, you know, that Brown happens and these white schools are not going to hire them, you know? And so you end up getting a dearth, you know, this, this, this void gets developed that people don't sort of look at. And that's where you get a chance to see the sociology behind, you know, what happens around these cases, you know, that I think is really critical. Definitely. You know, there, there's a second part to this story. I was doing my talk with the Latin, you know, with the Latine and Asian American students as I had to tell them, you know, yes, of course, you definitely did something that's there, but you need to be ready for the whole story because it's very complicated. And you're going to have to be ready to really tackle and embrace the fact that there's some serious anti-Blackness that exists in the history of those communities, you know, that absolutely needs to be addressed and tackled and seen, you know, and it's, it's messy. So you need to be able to, you know, you want it to be nice and clean and linear. And it's not going to be that. It's going to be messy, and you need to be able to embrace the mess as well, you know, um, and be able to confront it. And I mean, that's one of the things, you know, you have critical race theory, right? Which is what I talk about in the book. And then there's branches to it. People don't realize there's all these branches because I'm like, you're freaking out about CRT. There's Latin crit, Asian crit, tribal crit, you know, just all these different ones. And one of my biggest problems with a lot of them is that they don't address the anti blackness you know, um, that exists. And I think that if you don't fundamentally attack that, you're not gonna be able to really truly understand inequality, you know. Definitely, and I I think it's a lot of my episodes this semester have been talking about that intersection between law and education. And I think that 
I think that in the world of education, we often see reflections of some of the messiest parts, right, okay. uh, that we see in society. And I and I think I'm really glad you brought up the CRT component because that that is true. There's a lot of people that there's pushback for CRT without full understanding really of of what mm-hmm. it includes and what it doesn't include and yeah. and when we and those things that are not included are really important. So I'm glad you touched on on those different branches as well because okay. CRT didn't pop up in 2020, right? CRT right. has been around for a long time. For a long but, beautiful history. Uh, truly and but the hard part when people so it's good for people to join conversations but when people join conversations with such varied amounts of knowledge, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it important pieces of of the history are missing in those yeah. contexts. And I think that's something that we'll we'll always have to wrestle with. And I think as lawyers, it's important that we're we keep that in mind. You know, there's not always uh, an, a holding that wraps up everything perfectly yeah, yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for the problems that law <laughs> aims to fix, you know? And, yeah. and I think that that's, that's really important to think about. Is there anything else about the book that you want to share or anything else that you feel like you usually talk about when you talk about the bricks before Brown? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things I'm hoping to contribute to the conversation, you know, um, regarding you know, law and education um, and history and education, you know, is, is this idea that, you know, of the sociologists, one of the things that's really hard to explain to them is that they'll say, well, what's your data? You know, what's your data set, you know? And I'll tell them, well, the cases are the data. The people in those cases are the data. Their experience, the articles and news articles written about this, and that's the data, you know, that's on there. And, you know, it was such a, an incredible journey to, to get to meet these families and to be able to share their stories. You know, I don't tell people I tell their stories, they tell their own stories. I just get the opportunity to share it, you know? And so um, looking at, again, all the different connections, you know, one of the, one of the aspects I talk about are, is gender, you know, and I, I talk about the fighting fathers. There's a whole narrative about fathers who are fighting on behalf of their daughters. And I call them missing mothers. I alliterate a lot, missing mothers who, who are, not really ever mentioned, you know, um, even though they were such a critical part of it. And then in the, the four cases, of course, you know, Brown, there's Linda Brown, Sylvia Mendez, um, Alice Piper, and Mamie Tate. And I call them pretty little plaintiffs, you know, because uh, they're four little girls, you know, and the fact that they're little girls mean something, you know, because little girls are, you want to rescue them, right? You know, whereas if they were all little boys, those little boys grow up to be men. And with the anti-miscegenation that was so rampant all throughout history, that's a little bit harder fight to battle. You know what I mean? Um, Harder battle to fight, you know. Um, But so I'm hoping to be able to really kind of contribute that to the conversation and, you know, um, and just just share how I hope that the readers fall in love with the families the same way I did. I just, I fell in love with them, you know? Um, and I know that scholarly, you're not supposed to talk about falling in love with things, but you know, I'm like, Shh, you know, it's the truth. <laughs> and and even, you know, and again, the, the stories weren't always clean, you know, that some of them were really hard, 
um, some of this, the information that, that I discovered was not always that fantastic, but being able to, to see it all in, in all the good, bad, and ugly was really just such a privilege that, that I'm grateful I have an opportunity to share it with people. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. That's, yeah. that's awesome. And I also am a fan of alliteration. Um, <laughs> so I think it's great. And we just, I'm taking criminal procedure right now. And Professor Cook is my professor. And she integrates a lot of critical race theory into, into her instruction. And we watched, we watched the Central Park Five in class. You know, we didn't just watch an excerpt. We watched, we watched every part of that. That's um, awesome of that movie and it will it was I wouldn't say there was any good it was all ugly right mm -hmm. um of course there's there's good at there's somewhat good I guess when they are released at the end but you know those attorneys those prosecutors never never admit any wrongdoing right and, and the law the law is messy and and these aren't just five boys these are families and communities that will never really be the same. And and so yeah. I'm glad you brought up the the pretty little plaintiffs and and what what is palatable enough for um for white action, I think, mm -hmm. to, to put it to put it plainly. And, you know, the super predator theories and and all these things and, and the way that the press did villain um villainize and vilify those boys. And they're all youth, right? Like it's yeah. it's not as if we're not talking about children, but America, you know, does love to, unfortunately, you know, black kids have to grow up quickly and- uh, And not even at, under their own control, they're aged quickly. Right, you know, exactly. They're 12, but they might as well be 18 in people's eyes, you know? Right. That's one of the things that I tell people when I talk about Brown, you know, I mean, one of the things that we, that I discuss, and I'm not the first scholar to point this out, but Brown, the Brown family were very specifically chosen to be the lead plaintiffs. You know, the, the argument used to be, oh, well, it was alphabetical. And I was like, no, oh, that's not really true. You know, if you look at all the other plaintiffs, but very few people know there's five cases to Brown, you know, that all came, came together, you know. Um, and so when you look, there's other, you know, plaintiffs that came before, you know, before Brown, but Briggs, for example, that was Elliot Briggs, right? So there's a little boy. You know, um, Briggs comes before Brown, but Briggs was not the lead plaintiff, right? And the the other um, plaintiffs, you know, uh, had single, it was single mothers, you know, that were attached to them. So they needed and wanted an intact, you know, relatively middle-class family, you know, because um, to be able to be the representative. So the NAACP had, was very purposeful, you know, and I don't think we people pay attention enough to that too. Um, and, and who it is. And so, yeah, they, they, there's a whole story with that and the NAACP and how they do, you know, what, you know, the, the challenges that they presented in that, in that when it came to selecting people, you know, in the middle class respectability politics that was totally, totally, you know, entwined in all of that. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exciting to to talk about and important to have these conversations, but it is seeing those those parallels. Um, it, it it's it's hard to sit with sometimes, but the visibility is is what I what I cling to and the importance of 
of shining light on those things, even when it is messy and and hard to talk about. Because I think being a lawyer, being a law student is you're gearing up for a leadership role uh, and a lot of power that mm -hmm. I think shouldn't really be taken lightly, whether you do whatever type of law you do, you know, you're, you're equipped with a certain type of knowledge that a lot of people don't, don't have. <laughs> and no, <it's> <laughs> it is a privilege. Yeah. It's a privilege. And yet, you know, what is that, that Spider-Man saying with great power comes, you know, great responsibility. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I really, you know, I think that's, we, we get a lot of information dumped into our heads in law school. And that's not stuff that you can get away, you know, take away very, you know, very quickly. And I think that you get a new set of eyes, you know, that that um, you don't have, you know, you didn't have before. So you see things in ways other people don't see. And you need to be really good about explaining it to people. You know, I think I think that's always the best attorneys and the best lawyers are the ones that can explain it to people in a really simple way. Yeah. Definitely. I'm gonna make a prediction about you. Okay, let's hear it. Yeah. You're gonna go, you're gonna go get your PhD. You're gonna become a professor. Just FYI. <laughs> FYI. Heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. no, my, my mom tells me that too. So you're yeah, uh, just you know, when you when you go on that route, let me know. You know, I'll, let you know. Um, I'll, yeah. I'll give you some recommendations if you decide to go into sociology. I've got some great recommendations of where to go. Yeah, um, no, it's definitely something I'm 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 thinking about and I do You're think I do. Solid. I just love the idea of being able to bring in my my, my first love, which is storytelling and and literature. Mm -hmm. Like I, I will, um, I want to be able to bring those those in. I'm, here I am. I'm a sociologist. And I actually I just I entered a contest to write a children's book. Oh, amazing! They you know based on the bricks before Brown, but write a children's version of it. You That's know, great. So kids can learn because I love this idea of kids seeing themselves in books. Me too. I, yeah. I, I love this idea that if you know that high school and college students, you know, um, who read Brick my Bricks Before Brown book, that they see themselves making history. Like I yeah. love that. Yeah. You know, it's um, so important. That's yeah. so important. Um, yeah, that's that's when I wrote the book. I wrote it to be accessible. You know, right. in, in academia, accessible is a bad word. You know, um, but I didn't want my book. I, 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 you know, I tell people that you know, if I write a book that I can't read to my mother, then what's the point of writing? You know, what's the point of writing? And so, yeah, I think that's um, that's what I'm hoping that people see that this is not just for scholarly audiences. And in terms of your what you're currently teaching at Morehouse College, could you share what what do you teach at Morehouse? Um, and yeah. Yeah, I'd love to just hear a little bit about what what your day what your day looks like. I know you're in finals, so I think we yeah. all have a good a good idea of what your your day might look like. But your typical day, what you teach yeah. at Morehouse, and and how that's been going. So I get a lot of um, that's one of the wonderful things about teaching because you know going from a PWI or an HWI, historically white institute, you know, institution to um, to a historically black college and university, you you get a tremendous amount of freedom to be able to, as a race scholar, to explore things that I, I don't have to spend the first five weeks of class, you know, convincing the white students that racism is real. You know what I mean? It's like, so I can dive right in, you know, to some really cool stuff. And so I teach social problems. Um, I teach intro to sociology. 
um, I got to design a course called Social Inequality with Nina Simone, where we took Nina Simone songs <laughs> and the, the topic that she covers in the music is what we covered in the class, you know, um, and found readings attached to that. Um, I teach theory, contemporary theory. And so the theory course is called um, Du Boisian um, Deniers, Disciples and Developers. And it's all rooted in Du Bois and, you know, and, and that's something I would definitely not be able to do at a PWI, you know, that would be considered a special topic, you know, whereas at Morehouse, it is, it is, you know, our heritage, you know what I mean? Because W.B. Du Bois was there at the Atlanta University Center. So the, the historian and me, you know, when I first stepped, stepped foot, you know, foot on Morehouse, I was just totally geeking out, you know. Um, and then I developed a course called Civil Rights of a Different Color. And what we do is we start with the Black Civil Rights Movement, and then we look at the Latine Civil Rights Movement, the Asian American Civil Rights Movement, Native American Disability Rights, and LGBTQ+, um, to be able to, again, you know, do a comparative study, you know, of them not putting an equal sign. I think this is the thing that I try to make so critical with the book and the way that I teach. I am not putting an equal sign between the experiences of African Americans, Latines, Asian Americans, and Native Americans. You know, but I would put a mathematical simile sign, you know, because I think there's a lot of similarities, you know, that, the, that they experience. So, yeah, I get to I, I get to totally nerd out <laughs> at Morehouse in a way that I have, wasn't able to at PWIs. <laughs> wow, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to audit all of your Morehouse classes right now. <laughs> scheming um yeah my colleagues like i want to take your class like, i know it's amazing. Time. i share my syllabus all the time maybe you know you can see the readings you know? yes i'd love to and i i think a lot about um du bois is someone I, I think about the souls of black folk all the time especially the coming of john is is actually a uh that excerpt in particular i'm actually working with my clinical supervisor in the education law project to to find a way to perhaps integrate that um next semester nice in our work uh because it's so relevant and um i'm lucky that the black studies department at amherst college had had a lot of a lot of sway and du bois was a big big part of that um but he also spent time at umass amherst so i think it might be a, a little bit of a similar yeah yeah <laughs> similar feeling that um you know it is amherst is a home of sorts for him as well um and i love hearing about I was listening to Baltimore by Nina Simone actually just yesterday. So I'm <laughs> hearing about um, how you're bringing that in and, and the stories that it can tell. And so I guess as we, we, we wrap up, you know, there's a lot of exciting things we've talked about. We've talked about a lot of ways in which you were able to, to take the things that you've, that you've loved and, and build a career that, that combines them quite beautifully. Um, and thank you. Um, I, I'm just so, so excited. Um, but I guess what, what advice do you have for, for other like-minded legal scholars or yeah. law students who are, who maybe have a background in something else or are, are feeling torn maybe in multiple directions? What what advice would you maybe maybe share with them that maybe you wish someone had told you uh, mm -hmm. while you were 
uh, studying the law for the first time. You're continuing to study the law, but in your, in your first years of law studying. Yes. Honestly, I would tell you following your heart doesn't mean that you're selfish. Putting your desires first and what it is that you want to do does not make you a selfish person. It makes you a, it can make you a very happy person. You know, and I think that particularly for BIPOC students or first generation students in particular, there's a tremendous pressure to deliver for your family, to deliver for your community. And you start thinking about all the things that they want from you. Um, and I think that, you know, had I known at, at, that, at that age in my time, you know, how, how critical it is to follow your own heart and know that, you know, if you really wanna go and make a difference with a nonprofit, your law, your legal skills will come in handy. I promise you, you know, you're whatever, you know, I think I can't remember the last percentage, but there's a pretty large percentage of people who don't, who actually don't practice law. You know, they graduate from law school and they don't become lawyers, you know, or they become lawyers and then they end up going into some the private sector, you know, the non nonprofit sector, NGOs, you know, those sorts of things. And I think that, you know, take advantage of the flexibility that a, that a law, a legal education provides you. Um, and know that you're not, by, by putting yourself first, you're not being selfish. You're really just trying to follow your heart. Thank you. That is a perfect way for us to wrap up our time together. Thank you so much for coming on the Podvocate today. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. And I appreciate it. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our associate editors are Naka Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.